Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy together and make a big round of applause for Davy Rothbart and Ada Calhoun. Yay! Hello. Hey. Uh, thanks you guys so much for coming out. I, I personally am extremely excited for tonight because uh, I'm such a fan of Ada and her, her writing and, and her new book um, is incredible. So to have the chance to ask her questions in person about her process and about... Um, you know, about her book uh, will be a real treat for me and I think for all you guys because you guys will be welcome to answer questions, uh, ask questions. You can answer them too even. Skip a step. <laughs> um, but uh, well, one of the reasons I, I was really attracted to Ada's book is um, because it, well, it spoke to me. I, I wrote this book that came out a couple years ago. It's called My Heart is an Idiot. And it's about my own personal kind of misadventures. And in, that's how we met. It's wonderful. And I wrote him the fan letter, basically. Um, it's incredible. It's sold out here, unfortunately. But, um, but you can order it. Yes, I have one copy, too. I can, it's all rumpled. <laughs> um, but uh, I thought it would be a fun way to start the night is just to share one of these very short pieces from my book. And I'm going to ask Ada then to read a little bit out of her book before we dig into some Q&A stuff. But, um, you know, this book is about a lot of relationships I have. And, you know, before you get married... Um, which and, you did recently. Right, which I did uh, last fall. And um, before, before, I, before I did, I had, you know, quite a few ups and downs in my love life. And I think a lot of people experience that. Yeah. And, this, and, the, and <laughs> Murray, Murray gets, gives me a hell yeah. Um, but... Uh, so, so th- this piece is about kind of that search for a soulmate. And, you know, you, you always wonder, where am I going to meet that person that's going to, you know, become a life partner, really become a companion, change my, turn my life around. And, and for me, um, one of the places where I used to often spot what I thought would be great potential soulmates, life partners, uh, was, was on an airplane. Because I had this weird thing happen. And I, it, it happened in this story where you meet somebody... Um, at, and they just end up sitting next to you on the plane, and, and you never know where it's going to go from there. So I had very high hopes for this one. Um, it just takes me about four minutes to read this. It's called Southwest. Uh, some folks fall in love gradually. For me, it always happens in an instant. I was, I was at the airport in Albuquerque, headed for California, when I saw a beautiful and sweet girl dressed in white, maybe 27 years old. I watched her at the check-in counter. She was sad but radiant. And she moved and spoke delicately, like an arctic bird on a fragile bit of ice. With her was a gumpy guy in a hot pink No Fear t-shirt. He was pestering the lady behind the counter with questions about the plane. Is it a 747 or a 767? The lady had no idea, but he was determined to pry an answer from her. I prayed that this guy was not the boyfriend of my sweet girl. It seemed inconceivable, and yet I knew the world was filled with strangeness, so it was hard to say. The pair finished their business at the counter and, to my delight, said goodbye and headed off separately. I noticed for the first time that the girl was wearing a cumbersome plastic boot on her right foot, as though she'd broken a bone or torn a ligament, causing her to lurch and sway with each step. This effortful gait, combined with her sad glow, twisted something in me, and my heart hurt, and I was in love. (laughs) It's been my peculiar blessing that every time I see a beautiful girl at an airport, she ends up sitting next to me on the plane. This has led to a number of thrilling flights filled with excited conversation, followed by an exchange of email addresses at baggage claim. But what do you email to a girl who lives in Pensacola, Florida, or Vancouver, or Dublin? Ships crossing, it never adds up to much. So it was no surprise, but a kind of painful wonder, when I got on the plane in Albuquerque and found myself sharing a row with the sweet and limping girl in white. She had the window, I had the aisle. Between us, her purse and my backpack shared a seat and gently caressed. (laughs) Our plane rocketed into the night, and the girl stared sadly out the window. I waited for her to glance my way so I could begin the conversation that I guessed would end painfully when we parted ways in San Diego. But she was so lost in her aching and faraway thoughts that she never turned from the window, even when the beverage cart rolled past with pretzels and Coke. 
to busy myself, and because it was the only other thing on my mind, I pulled out a long story I'd been working on for three weeks and had just finished that morning and printed out. And I went through it making little changes, turning the pages loudly in hopes that the girl would peek over, but my efforts seemed to go unnoticed. Her lips were pursed, her eyes cut at the clouds. In a way, she was too nicely dressed for my taste, but that bland elegance was exotic to me and made me hunger for her more. I looked back at the typed pages in my hands. I was still in that fleeting honeymoon phase you'll sometimes have with a just-finished story, where for a moment, everything about it feels perfect and snugly in place. Finally, I said to the girl, Hey, what's your name? She smiled at me, which was a surprise. Her name was Kara. She was a student in Seattle. I asked about her boyfriend's interest in planes. Boyfriend? At the check-in. Oh, no, she explained. That was only her cousin. She had been visiting family in New Mexico. I thought her sadness would make conversation lurch and buckle, but everything sailed smooth as could be. She acted oddly grateful to me for the small talk, and she seemed to occasionally hold my gaze for an extra sixteenth note. But how could I parlay this chance meeting and warm chemistry into a lasting love? I told Kara I'd be right back, and I took the riddle with me to the back of the plane. Among portholes and strange cabinets, I stretched my legs and listened to two male flight attendants tease each other about some misadventure involving a motorcycle and a birthday gift. I knew I needed to give Kara something that would keep us in contact, but what? Then I knew I'd give her the story I'd been working on. It would communicate something of me, and more importantly, it would give her something to respond to, a reason to stay in touch. I glided back down the aisle and took my seat again. Kara laughed, wondered if you were coming back. I got held up in traffic, I said. Listen, uh, do you like to read? What? Reading. Do you like to read? She paused and thought about it. Granted, it was a stupid question, but not a complicated one. At last, she said, No. <laughs> no? You don't like to read? No. She said apologetically, I hate reading. <laughs> you hate reading? I just don't like it. You just don't like it. I laughed. She clearly wasn't kidding. All I could do was repeat after her, like an idiot. Sometimes I read magazines, she offered hopefully. I like to see what the models are wearing. Sadly, shamefully, pathetically, I forced my story on her anyway. <laughs> I tried to explain what it was about, but the crashing down of my, of my fantasies made me tongue-tied and weary. I wrote my email address and my cell phone number at the top. In case you want to let me know what you thought of it, I said. Kara smiled brightly and folded the story carefully into her purse, like a drawing given to her by a child. <laughs> Later, I imagined she'd rid herself of the thing in the ladies' room trash can. Still, her eyes seemed to be expressing to me that she wasn't ruling out the possibility of staying in touch. In San Diego, I was headed for baggage claim, and she was off to catch her connecting flight. We hugged. She had no scent at all. I knew, for that reason somehow, that I would never hear from her. Keep in touch, I said. I will, she said. Then her face took on the dark look she'd had when I'd first seen her. She turned, and I stood watching as she shuffled away down the long corridor until at last she disappeared out of sight. Thank you. That's so great. Wow. Um, so I, I, learned, I learned something through that experience, and, and these are some of the things that you allude to in your book, Ada. Um, you, did you pick out a section to share? Yeah. yeah let's hear it. Okay. I, you know, it's funny because I just, I, because you read that, I thought I'd read um, the chapter or part of the chapter I have about soulmates um, because I think in your book you have all these sort of almost soulmates over and over again. Um, or I, far from almost soulmates. <laughs> <laughs> they're in the, yeah, in the genre of yeah. soulmates. Um, and you're sort of very, you know, you talk about that sort of search for somebody so beautifully. So I thought I would, I would just talk about that. Um, that idea, the, the soulmate fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it has the Southwest and cousins in it. So nice. it's kind of like, you know, kin kindred, kindred four pages. Yes. All right. The best wedding toast I've ever heard was delivered by my cousin Rhodes, who's a few years older than me at his brother's wedding. It was about the statistical impossibility of soulmates. He calculated the odds of ever finding the one person meant for you. Given the billions of people on the planet, the number of people you're likely to meet in the course of your life, and the fact that in the scheme of human history, none of us stays in a corporeal body for very long. <laughs> if soulmates are real, statistically speaking, you would have to live many thousands of lifetimes without love. Rhodes concluded by saying, so, I think the odds are against your being soulmates, but that doesn't make it less of a miracle that you found each other. <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien 
the author of The Lord of the Rings did not live a fantastical life. Orphaned as a child and raised by a local priest, he embraced tradition and academia. He fell in love with a young woman named Edith when they were teenagers, married her as soon as he came of age, supported her and their children in the suburbs as a professor, and remained by her side until she died at the age of 82. Ronald, as he was known, would have to tolerate Edith's absorption in the daily details of life, trivial as they might seem to him, said a biographer. She would have to make an effort to understand his preoccupation with his books and languages, selfish as it might appear to her. Only a very wise man, at the end of his life, could make a sound judgment concerning whom amongst the total possible chances he ought most profitably to have married, Tolkien wrote in a letter to his son. Nearly all marriages, even happy ones, are mistakes in the sense that almost certainly in a more perfect world, or even with a little more care in this very imperfect one, both partners might have found more suitable mates. The real soulmate is the one you were actually married to. My cousin Jeremy believed in soulmates. He was two years older than me and my opposite in almost every way. I lived in the city, he lived in the country, I was shy, he was outgoing, I had blonde hair, he had brown, I was a good girl, he was a rascal. Growing up, he was the closest thing I had to a brother. During holidays and summers, we played hide-and-seek, had bottle rocket fights, picked leeches off our bodies after swimming. We shared a treehouse. We shot skeet in a field. As kids, we watched The Incredible Hulk. As tweens, we tried to unscramble the satellite so we could make believe we were viewing a blurry Playboy channel. We played the McDonald's Monopoly sweepstakes like it was our job. (laughs) We recorded a radio show on a cassette player. This is Twins Radio, coming at you from upstairs that featured dreadful Ronald Reagan and Rambo jokes that we'd cribbed from Mad Magazine. (laughs) We attended freezing early morning swim classes together, to which his big sister grudgingly chauffeured us while blasting Madonna's holiday. We took baths together until we were too old to take baths together. When we were teenagers, we got in his car, a wrecked up Pinto that eventually caught fire, and drove out to remote fields where we drank warm beer around campfires. And when I was 15, I fell in love with one of his friends. Steve was 19. When I looked at him, it was like being caught in a tractor beam. He wore an engineer's cap and had sleepy eyes and John Lennon glasses. And if he had asked me to drop out of high school, marry him, and live in a trailer in the woods, I would not have hesitated for one second. When I left the living room of some random underfurnished house in which my cousin's friends and I were sitting around smoking too many cigarettes, Steve would come find me. We met in barns and hallways and in his cool old car. Um... On a road trip in college, my first husband, Nick, and I stopped in to stay with Jeremy in Arizona and found a note saying he was sorry that he'd left for his own road trip that morning with the woman he'd just met who was his soulmate. (laughs) Even though his roommates let me and Nick crash on the kitchen floor, I was mad that Jeremy had bailed on our plans. Here we were suddenly with this group of new-agey southwestern hippies who left all the doors and windows open and who thought it was hilarious and not terrifying when a large, befanged, bristly-haired wild beast, as it turned out, an animal called a javelina, if you've seen one of these in person, they're like dinosaurs, (laughs) wandered into the house in the middle of the night. I was further annoyed because Jeremy's relationship with his soulmate didn't survive. When I reminded him of her some years later, he said, who? (laughs) (laughs) Tolkien and his wife bickered, but friends noted how in their old age they functioned as a sort of kindly two-headed creature. One visitor recalled Tolkien discoursing on etymology at the same time that his wife described a grandchild's measles, speaking over each other but in harmony. On summer evenings, they sat together on their front porch or in their garden, smoking and marveling at how with little in the way of role models, they had created a happy family. In that letter to his son, Tolkien blamed the soulmate's myth on the romantic chivalric tradition. Its weakness is, of course, that it began as an artificial courtly game, a way of enjoying love for its own sake. It takes, or at any rate has in the past taken, the young man's eye off women as they are, that is, companions in shipwreck, not guiding stars. Well, that's just a little taste of Ada's fantastic and amazing book, and uh, I definitely encourage you guys to check it out. It's um, it's really beautiful, and Thanks. and you know, it's I, I kind of describe it as like half memoir, half instruction manual. You know, because you've been married for how long now? Um, this time, um, twelve, thirteen years. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and and so you know, like I I feel like you are there's there's a there's a certain kind of book that. Um, I find it hard to read, which is an expert trying to dispense knowledge yeah, and okay. saying that they know like everything about this su- subject. And um, you kind of come to this topic <laughs> like somebody who is kind of exploring it with the reader yeah. and, and trying to look at your own marriages and, and figure out what 
what's worked and what hasn't and why and, and, and then pulling in all these other stories, whether it's Tolkien or, you know, uh, 50 other great examples. Um, so I have a few questions f- yeah. for you to start out. And, and first of all, your husband now, what, what's his name again? Neil. Neil. What? That's good his good best, job. One of his you, best friends, right there. You got, you got. Well, what did Neil think when you when you told him you were going to write this book? Um, he well, so as because he's as, in it, he's in it quite a bit. <laughs> he is. There's a yeah. lot of information about him, like yeah. really a lot of information. Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's one thing um, to share, you know, like this this book. I write a lot about my own stuff, but I, yeah. I didn't bring in like my current now wife's yeah. you know story as much. Um, but yeah, what, what do you? Yeah, think? and I want to ask you about that too. But um, so this. I, like, my husband is actually the perfect person to be married to if mm. you're a memoirist because he's an exhibitionist. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, like, he performs naked at times. Like, he is a maniac, um, performance artist and musician. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, the second I said that, somebody like, last night um, in Berkeley got on their phone and started, like, looking up naked pictures of him. So he... Um, he really, like, when he read it the first time, he was like, I think it needs to be sexier. I think you need to add more, like, crazy stuff. <laughs> so he, so that was not a problem. Yeah. I did go, and I wonder if you did this. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody who's in the book in any kind of meaningful way, I asked them how they felt about it. And, yeah. I, and I sent them the part that they were in. What were the most complicated responses that you got? I mean, some of them were fantastic. That guy who, you know... Jeremy? Uh, no, oh. well, no. But the, um, did his soulmate? Did you talk to her? <laughs> we can remember, nobody can remember her name, unfortunately. But like I talked to all these ex-boyfriends, you know, like that guy. It's and a weird call to give someone you maybe haven't talked to for a few years. It's yeah, and I did it by email usually, yeah. so it'd be like they could kind of you know ease into it. Um, and usually I would just say, "Hey, I'm writing this book. You know, I mentioned you in it. He, you know, I'm happy to send you the whole thing if you want. You know, but here's the little bit where I talk about you. Let me know if you want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and it, actually, I wound up having for the most part, really great conversations. There were definitely a couple people who I think did not really want to be bothered with that, and um, but they didn't tell me not to. What, what, was nice. what, was, what was the best conversation and the most challenging conversation you had? Oh, gosh. Uh, when, 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 when going out... First of all, I respect that you reached out to every one of these yeah, people. Yeah, so did you and do that? I, I did, and you I'll, did that I'll too. share a story about okay, that too. Okay, I want to hear yours. But, but it, I appreciate that you did that, because um, it is, you know, some of these people are probably still good friends, and you talk to them right. regularly. They knew you were working on this book, but some of them, it was probably a surprise to hear from you. And yes. Then, so, but what was the best thing that came out of it, and the, the most challenging? Um, the best thing was somebody that I'd been, like, madly in love with years ago, who had yeah. dropped me, um, uh, said that they were, I mean, and they may have just been being nice now, because they did, had nothing to lose at this point. Yeah. But that they had been intimidated because I was too smart for them. And that's, they said that, they explained that that was why that was the relationship why. had ended. Yes. Oh. So that was like, I felt like he had read my mind that I, that was what I wanted to hear. And <laughs> well, it was true, obviously. I mean, I think actually he just wanted to get with this like super hot other girl, you know, was the real reason, but he was very nice to say what he said. Um, and so then the worst, I don't know, the, it was it was hard like going back to talk to my first husband because that was sort of an early relationship. And How I old were you guys? 20. And, uh, you know, and I sort of, I didn't, the reason I kind of called him was I didn't know if I should talk about it at all. Yeah. My, my current husband was like, you know, you guys were married. I was like, well, kind of. He's like, no, no, no. Like, you had to get a divorce. It <laughs> yeah. means you were married. Yeah. And so he, um, I was like, well, so I called him and I was kind of like, where are we married? Does it count? Were we married? And he was like, yes. So I was like, oh, okay. So now I have to start talking about it like. It it's a real matter. thing, a real thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah so. so then, um, so that was was hard, but I was glad I did. So tell me yours. Well, well, let me just follow up. Let me. Sorry to grill you uh, <laughs> on the hard stuff, but like, yeah. what 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 was hard? What specifically? What talking about your past relationship itself, or talking about what you wrote about it? I mean, you know, there was stuff in there that he didn't love, I think. And Mm -hmm. so he, I mean, it was just like a couple words. And this is kind of interesting. Like almost in every case, it was people had these like one, this one word or two words that just kind of got under their skin. And it was almost always stuff I couldn't have guessed. Like somebody I'd written about, she she told me a story and I'd I'd talked about it. And and she said, please don't use the word institution. Use the word psychiatric ward. You know, and I'm just like, and the word institution like made her crazy. Uh-huh. There was like another case where I was talking about this guy I'd had this kind of thing with, and I described him as like scurrying out of the room, and he was like, "Please don't say I'm scurrying. It's emasculating. I'm a man. I don't scurry. I leave." <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> Christine, do you have a question? Question: Did you change their name anyway? In the 
I didn't change anybody's name. Really? Yeah. And did did I changed a lot of names? Did you did you did you offer them that option? No. Oh, no. <laughs> Should I have? I didn't. I don't know. I mean, I think if they were okay with it, you, I mean, you, you know, they read the pieces that they were involved in. So yeah, I mean, yeah. nobody nobody told me don't use my name. He, they just said don't use scurry. They just said don't use scurry or, or he said, institution. He, he said yeah. don't use scurry, and then he scurried out of the room. Then he scurried. He totally scurried. <laughs> Skulked. Um, yeah. No. I mean, in in most in the book, I quote dozens and dozens of people. I usually don't use their names at all. Yeah. I just and I don't use a lot of identifying characteristics even because my kind of goal with this and I think politically this was part of it. I'm glad you had a lollipop. Um, was that you know it's like the, every, the country's so polarized right now that um, I think it was uh, you know and this wasn't this was before the election but um, but I kind of wanted to just distill all the things that were universal. So it's not like I describe different people's socioeconomic backgrounds or where in the country they live, but I definitely did a very broad survey yeah. and just tried to get what was essential and what anybody could relate to and I just identified them as like a woman I know or something like it, that it, well and and they are so I mean it's not important that that it's this specific person it's that it's this guy that you dated and you know yes, who who, who, yeah. who their actual identity is doesn't matter as no much. it doesn't matter but 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 you hit on something you know you've been you've been touring around and and going to all the country's great cities and <laughs> and um, besides LA until yeah. tonight and um People, it sounds like, have been sharing their own stories with you. I mean, yeah. I mean, what what have you heard? How have people been responding to the book? What have what what have people been asking you about that that really like struck a nerve? I don't know. Well, it's really funny because almost everybody who's read it has said that it made them think a lot more deeply about their own marriage or or lack of marriage, uh-huh. and not always in a bad way. Like, definitely. Last night, somebody was like, you know, I read your book, and, you know, I've, I'm, I've been divorced for, like, 20 years, and it made me so glad that I'm divorced, because, <laughs> you know, I realized I was just not, not into it, like, that whole thing, I was not into it, um, and then somebody else told me, like, he's um, never been married, and he wants to get married, and he said it reminded him of why... Why he what he wanted, yeah. and that I think he'd been sort of thinking of the guiding stars ideal, yeah. and that you know that the companions and shipwreck idea for him was very liberating. There, 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 can you explain that concept? Because uh, there, there is such a you know TV and and and, and yeah. movies, um, you know, create this sort of unre- unrealistic expectation about what not just what love is, but about what marriage is. Yeah. You know, and I think you do a great job to kind of um, you know pull away at that mystique a little bit and kind of talk about some nuts and bolts stuff. That's right. What are, what are some of the things, what do, you, what do you think are some of the things in the book that like are almost the most helpful like nuts and bolts advice that you would give to people? I mean, because you, yeah. you've spent a lot of time thinking about marriage, the institution, I'm sorry, the psychiatric ward of marriage. <laughs> the psychiatric you know, you know? <laughs> and so, so, so what, are, what are some of the, uh, you know, what, what are some of the nuts and bolts advice, you know, or just kind of broad stuff that you would tell people that you've learned from writing this book. Yeah, well, it's funny. But so the, the, the book came about because I wrote a New York Times Modern Love column a couple of years ago that went sort of weirdly viral. And it seemed very obvious to me, but, um, but I think it wasn't, it turns out. Um, and the idea was that we were going to all these weddings and everybody was delivering these very starry-eyed vows. Like, I will always be your best friend every second forever. Um, you know, I will never let you down. And just all of these things, which are great ideals, but quite unrealistic. And... Um, in that same moment, my husband and I were fighting a lot um, because certain Mr. Murray Hill up here um, took him out, <laughs> took him out drinking the night before we were supposed to make a plane to come join me in Minneapolis, and he missed the flight. I was very angry with him, and this was right around the same time that we were going um, to these weddings. And and so the contrast between what people were saying they were going to do for each other and what I knew to be the reality of actually being married, um, you know, year in year out, yeah. were so stark. Yeah. And I think the thing that uh, that was in that essay. And that sort of permeates the book is, um, and the book is Seven Toasts that I would never give. So that was the first one, the, the Modern Love, which is the first chapter of this book, was the toast I thought of, you know, when we were going to those weddings and I was mad about these plane tickets. Um, thank you, Murray. Um, and then there's, you know, seven different ones. Um, but the main theme was that, that we think marriage is going to be better than life. And we think we're going to be better when we're married. And we're not. We're the same. <laughs> and, and it's not better than life. It's the same as life. Um, so there's suffering and there's joy and it's usually intertwined. Um, but it's not, it just, it's not, it's not better. It's the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think, 
So that, 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 that's good advice to give people. Well, I think we get blindsided because I think it has yeah. to do with this fantasy like you're talking about, this mythologizing of marriage mm-hmm. as this glorious institution that's going to render you somehow you know, more perfect and this relationship more perfect. Um, and it just, it just doesn't do that. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think, if somebody told you, um, they, like a friend of mine told me recently that he had been dating this woman for three months and that he was about to propose to her, uh-huh. what advice would you have for that person? No, no names, <laughs> but, but they're in this room, in the third oh. row. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> These two couples looking at each other. I'm messing around. I'm messing around. He's not. He's not here tonight. He's not. But he does live in LA. But, but um, what what advice do you think? I mean, that is that too soon? Is that? I too? think. I mean, I think being in. I think it. I think it's good to be in love with somebody you're going to marry. I think it's good to be really excited about them. And my husband and I moved in together three months after we met. Yeah. We got married a couple, you know, a couple years later. Um, you know, I think that it's just the expectation shouldn't be that it's going to be super duper fun all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter when it is that you get married, you're going to s- struggle, and, yeah. and not just like not just like a little bit, but yeah. like probably a lot at various points. Mm-hmm. Like I sort of say in the book that we should be given like a bingo card of crises when we get married, <laughs> and like see how long it takes you to like bingo. Like, do you get like a house fire or an affair or unemployment or a de- dark depression or you know like how do you get your so, five? So even when you row? lose, you win. Right. You yeah. win the bingo game. Yeah, yeah. I think in the book I'm like, oh look, you know, honey, we finally hit bingo. Like we did it way faster than the Joneses next door. Like, although they did have like a teenage pregnancy and you know their car blew up or whatever. Yeah. Uh, what, what, if I can ask you this, um, and I think Neil won't mind, uh, the, yeah, the exhibition said he is, what, what's been the biggest challenge, in, what's been one of the biggest challenges in your marriage? It could be something you wrote about in the book or not. Yeah, well, money is one. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and actually, let me stop. I yeah. want to hear about what the next thing is. But talk about money, because that's something that, for my, for my parents, that was probably the biggest um, challenge in their marriage it was just like it was such a constant pressure I think and it just really because they didn't they felt like they didn't have enough I, I think, yeah I think they had different philosophies about money a little bit and then they also just um, it just yeah it became a source of it was always a source of tension I guess yeah yeah, um, and I, how, how was how has that been? Well, how, how do you mean specifically? He's so he grew up in East Texas in like the Piney Woods and like very working class. They went to church three times a week, um, and I grew up in um, Manhattan with like these liberal bohemian maniac parents, <laughs> and so um, we just came from totally different worlds. And his um, his sense of what it meant to have money and be be safe and comfortable are just like it's very different. Like if he had like enough money to like buy a candy bar, he was like yeah. yeah. Um, and then for me, I just like I wanted a little more security. Yeah. Um, and then we never seem to. We're both freelance, so it's just this sort of constant, just constant pressure. Yeah. And, and constant need to hustle. And and what's the other what's the other thing you were going to get to? That was your oh other people. Like I think we've definitely had feelings at various points for other people because uh-huh. we're both out in the world a lot, and um and I think that that was something I was unprepared for. I thought that like getting married was just going to make me amazingly great at monogamy, uh-huh. and it's. Um, <laughs> It just didn't. So, um, you know, I've done my best. And and, and can you can you well, well extrapolate a little bit? I mean, you write about this in the book, yeah. you know. And you know what what um, you know how did those challenges like manifest themselves, and how did you deal with it? Well, um, you know, I talk in the book about how I think that it's there, people talk about monogamy as like it's an open or shut door. Like either you're like the the cover of the Times Magazine with like the polyamorous, you know, scheduling all their like affairs, um, <laughs> or you're like Mike Pence, right? And you like never go out with somebody else alone ever. You know that guy is secretly the Time Magazine cover type. You probably Wait, are like the same person. Yeah. Very good at, <laughs> at hiding it. Yeah. Well, it's funny though because I think those two things are actually quite. Similar. Right. I mean, I think those extremes. Those extremes are very similar because there's so many rules, there's so much structure, mm-hmm. um, and they seem they just they just seem very similar in that way. Whereas I think that like 90% of us are in between, where you know maybe we get a crush on like the UPS guy, or maybe we have a bunch of friends. He's really the cute. opposite. My <laughs> UPS guy's really cute. Um, <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> they all are. Maybe they all are. All the UPS guys. Um, but you know, like that you have to na- navigate this, and and that doesn't necessarily mean you're like out having you know sex with all these people. But maybe it means that you get crushes, you know, once every five years, or maybe you kiss somebody once every ten years. And I think that there's not enough talk about that. And I think there's so much shame around it um, that actually, like I saw these statistics about um, infidelity. Um, 10% of people think that can ever be okay in this country. And then they ask about divorce, 72%. 
he thinks it's okay. So it's basically like, I think infidelity, there's more of a stigma around it than there is around divorce now. Yeah. Um, and which brings up this sort of weird, it, there's this kind of like weird thing where if you're married to five different people in the course of 50 years and you're faithful to each one of them, you're like a moral beacon. But if you are married to the same person for 50 years and you, you know, sleep with your secretary once um, on a business trip and, you know, you get a crush on a barista, you know, that's like really scandalous. Right, right. Um, so I just, I think maybe being a little more realistic about the fact that it's going to come up would help. That's told, that's really interesting. And you, you know, don't you give a number scale of some kind? Oh yeah, I say zero to five. Like instead of open and shut, maybe it's so, like zero. So to zero five. is Mike Pence. Zero is and Mike five Pence. Is five is the polyamorous. Ty, 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 yeah. And so I feel like I'm like a one or two. Like yeah. a, I'm like a one right now. So. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So don't don't get any ideas. Yeah. Maybe yeah. we go to the Dresden. She has a couple of drinks. <laughs> she just turns into a two. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> don't tell Neil. <laughs> um, what? Qu- l- l- let me. I have obviously more questions for you, but let me ask these guys out here um, in, the, in our audience. Does anybody have any questions? For this is an amazing resource. Um, I, some of you may have read the book already. It just came out recently. If you haven't read it, you maybe are either married or thinking about getting married one day. Um, do you have any questions for this incredible expert about love and marriage who has actually done a lot of a lot of great research over the last few years? Yeah, too. I don't know about expert though, because definitely, like, I feel like one thing nobody's going like, to pick up the book and be like, "She's got it all figured out." <laughs> no, like, but but I think I, I think but you've but you've put a lot of purposeful and thoughtful um, time into yeah. into just learning more about this strange thing that so many of us em- embark on. I mean, um, I don't know. D- does anyone have any questions so far? Yes, Christine. Okay, so um, I've I've heard this theory that if you have two jars and and, um, every time, before you get married, every time you are with your partner intimately, (laughs) put a marble in one of the jars. Uh And then the day you get married, you start taking a marble out of that jar, put it in the other jar, uh, you will never fill up that other jar. (laughs) That's terrible. I've never heard that. Wait, I don't I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm confused. Sorry. Let's, I, I'm going to re-explain it for the podcast audience. Okay. So, so once you get married, the yes. Oh, in other words, all the times you've coupled, um, <laughs> leading up to leading up to your, um, we're using for our podcast audience. We're using a certain level of uh, decorum yeah. for one of our young audience members here. But but every every time you've coupled up until you're married, you, that's how many times you have to spend later within your marriage. You'll never and you'll never have as do do that as much. Once you're married, so as you did, I leading up to it. Well, it depends. Well, it depends. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't find that true. But what I think that that speaks to is um, this thing about. Congratulations, you guys, on your marriage. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, congratulations! Yeah, it's really great. Nice <laughs> no, seriously. Um, no, I think what it speaks to is this tension between um, different things that human beings want. So human beings want. Um, intimacy and comfort and security and stability, and then we also want mystery and desire and um, and eroticism and all these kind of and danger. And those things don't go together very well. And I think it is true that when people get married, often they just are like, okay, we're just doing this security comfort thing now, and then all this other stuff goes away, this mystery and danger stuff. And I think that is where you get what you're talking about, these sort of sexless marriages, which I think it does happen, and I think when it does, it's because there's this preference for security over freedom and excitement. Um, but I, you know, I think we all want those things at different times too. Like sometimes I know, like you know, right after my son was born, it's like you, you know, you you want comfort. You don't want to like go out partying and being crazy. Um, whereas at other points in your life, um, I saw Claire Dieter's book up there, Love and Trouble. It's about she's in her fifties, having this sort of resurgence of this sort of danger in her life. Um, I, you know, I think it comes and goes for most of us. You, you talk about children. I know you're a mom, Ada. Um, yeah. And, you know, as, as someone who's recently married and, and uh, an aspiring parent, I guess, can you talk about the, the way that bringing, you know, having children 
affects a marriage for in, in the best ways and the most challenging ways? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's that's part of it is that, um, you know, and there's a chapter, a toast in the book called The Boring Parts about this sort of monotony um, of daily life that we that happens a lot, especially when you have a little kid, like a toddler at yeah. home, um, just because like, I remember like the opening and shutting the like drawers like over and over again for like hours and hours or like <laughs> watching the same Dora episode, Spectacle Bears, like every day, <laughs> all day long. Um, you know, it gets it, it can wear you down a little bit, um, and so I talk about boredom and how it functions in a in a marriage. And what do you say? Well, I say that like in retrospect, it's not boring. You know, I think that you know, I say it's like basically it's dating is like poetry, like it's exciting all the time, and um, and then marriage is like a novel. So there's plot development, and some there can be these like long stretches where you're just like establishing plot, and then um, in retrospect you're like, oh, that makes sense, that was really worthwhile. Um, but when you're in it, you're just like, okay, right, he, you know, met her in college, and that you know, yeah, 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 totally, totally, the Russian Russian novel, right, exactly, the, like six pages the about how someone or whatever. Was dressed, uh, yes, the, um, and uh, and uh, so. It, so part of what part of your job, I imagine, as you were working on this book, is not just to, you know, pull pull up all these great stories from your own life, but also to kind of read what other people's experience have been. You know, you shared Tolkien a little bit. Yeah. What, what what were some of the other stories that you stumbled upon that were just surprising to you and new to you, and or or or, or, yeah. or little wisdoms or insights that other people dropped that you that really resonated with you? I talked to like a lot of clergy and rabbis um, who do marriages and they uh, often said that they felt like people who they married weren't thinking very much about what they were doing in the moment. That they didn't um, think before they got married like why are we doing this? And that they the, the clergy people were like I was always trying to get them just like think about this as a theological difference. It's not the same as living together. Like once the day after you got married it's going to be different yeah. for all these reasons and that they didn't seem to necessarily always understand that. So I think the book was trying to answer this question of like, what is it? Like, because I think it does seem a little bit esoteric. Like, well, we still have cats together and we still share a bed, and yeah. like, but there's something different about being married, and what is that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what? What other? I have more questions for you, but here's a question. What's your name? Uh, Julia. Julia. I have a quick question. Just, um, I, I gave a. I was the, the efficient at the event. Oh. Awesome. And I'm not. I don't. I don't really believe in marriage. I don't want to get married. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect person to do do a ceremony. You're like. <laughs> no, so um, when I was sort of like thinking about the what I was going to say, I was thinking they had like been together for ten years. I was wondering like how when people are together for that long now and like not married and mm-hmm. then they get married. One of the things that I sort of grappled with was like, well, what is that? What are you really doing? Uh-huh. You know, like you've made these commitments to each other already. You've been together for ten years. You live together. You have a dog together. You know, like right. yeah, it's like what's yeah. changing? What's what's changing? Yeah, that's my. I, I don't know if that's a question, but it's, uh, yeah. No, I think it's a great question to be asking, and I think that's the question everybody would do well to ask themselves and I don't think I necessarily it definitely didn't the first time I don't think I asked it even enough the second time um, you know why why do it like there's no there's no stigma against it against you know living out of wedlock now having kids out of wedlock so what's the what's the point um, and I kind of go back to that companions and shipwreck idea like just to have somebody who's like your formal partner where it's like harder to get out of it um, I think there's like real value in being like bound up with somebody um, contractually and in front of and doing it publicly so everybody holds you accountable for what decision you've made one um, rabbi told me that he thought of the marriage ceremony as um, a raft that takes you from one bank of a river to another. And he said, this is like a, all ritual does this, right? So it, at birth, at death, if the bar mitzvah, whatever it is, it takes you to this other place. And that, um, and I think that's really beautiful, this idea that like this is us living together, having our dog, and then that's us being married, having our dog. Like that's just a different, different bank of the river. I, I officiated a wedding uh, a year ago for two friends here in LA who um, who, have, who had been together for like 15 years uh. and um, and I don't know if they asked themselves that question that much going into it either like what's changing but I will say that something does feel like it's changed and um, and I don't know I just I, I feel there's a different level that they reached and I, I don't know that marriage should be thought of as like a solution 
for you know if you're like struggling or anything like that. But but for a couple that was already very close and happy together, it did seem like they, it helped them reach some new height or the other side of the river. Yeah. yeah, there was somebody at Pals who like who started talking about her um, marriage and she hadn't wanted to get married at all. She was very against it. She was like, "There's no point, patriarchal, blah blah." And um, but then her her husband's family, because of all these sort of weird um, inheritance things, he's like a big land baron. It's a long story. Um, Did I marry to, him? <laughs> too, too late now, but. Um, uh, had sort of the family had sort of strong armed them into getting married, and she was kind of like you know dragging her heels on the way to get the license and everything. And she said the next day she woke up and she felt totally different, like that mm-hmm. she actually had this. She said she felt this sense of like, <sighs> like she felt a sort of relaxation in the relationship that she hadn't mm-hmm. even known she wanted. Um, that was this weird piece, like that you know you kind of like you can't get away from me now, like even if you try. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it was, but it, and it felt nice to her. Yeah, that's awesome that you d- did that, Julia. How, how come nobody's asking me to officiate weddings? You guys are doing it. Everybody's doing it. Um, definitely you'll, nobody you'll will get, now. now. Yeah, no, now, no, now, no, now definitely nobody's going I, to. I, now. I, I, you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. <laughs> um, I, here's another question for you, and I, of course, I, you guys, I want to welcome you guys to answer, ask more questions. But um, so I, I have a great relationship with my editor. Uh, his name is Sean McDonald yeah. at FSG, and and he really, you know. I wrote what I thought was the book, and then he really challenged me and pushed back on certain pieces, and we had a lot of back and forth before this version of the book came out. And I, and I want to ask you about who is your editor and what was your process like? What, what, thank you. Was there, was there, what was the most su- surprising thing that you were challenged on or, or forced to kind of expand in the book? You know, That's really interesting to hear that, because that book is so well-structured, and it's got such a... It's just so well put together. Thank it's a you. really, really Thank you. great. Well, thanks, book. Sean. I guess. So no, I'm glad, but it's because my editor's the same way. Like, yeah. so it's Tom Mayer. He's at Norton, mm-hmm. and he did my St. Mark's is Dead book also. Um, and in both cases, I turned in what I thought was the book, and he was like, "This is not. It's not done." And it was. Um, he's very rigorous about structure mm-hmm. and about making sure there's nothing. Nothing's there that shouldn't be there. And nothing. And so he actually had like 12 toasts before, and he was like, seven's a nice number. Well, give us a couple of bonus. What, what were the. I, I trust Tom's judgment. They were repetitive. But, but, they were like, okay. it was like, a, you know, is marriage work? Or just, you know, they're just kind of like. It's already, in, it's already in the other. It's all in the other chapters. And so, um, were there any things that he wanted you to expand on? Or was there anything new that ended up in the book that wasn't in the original version that, that, that you're happy, that you're now as happy as there? Yeah, I mean, everything. I'm really glad with the way the book turned out. And he, um, he, just, he just made me revise it and revise it and revise it. And the same thing, the St. Mark's book was a lot more. This is our second go-around. Yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah. a little bit I was, I think it, I turned in a better draft to him this time. But um, last time he was just, like, he he said it was like all over the place and he was like it has to have everything has to have an arc and he actually went and told me he said go read a bunch of August Wilson plays which like no editor says that like two years into a book project <laughs> like he is really exceptional awesome. so I did I was like okay I like went and like yeah. bought all the August Wilson plays you know off yeah. the bookshelf and like I sat and I read them all and I t- saw it like I yeah, saw what he was what talking he about and it, it was and that, what do you mean he meant that it's a one set drama. So basically, here's your. your so in, in my case, it was a, the history of a street for 400 years. Yeah. So he was like, the street is your set, and then characters have to come on, do things, leave, and then come back. And so, and basically, like, so I had like one part of the book that I'd really been struggling with, and it was like I introduced character, 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 and there was like two people talking, three people. Anyway, so it just kind of like builds like this, and at the end, the last scene is the Tompkins Square Park riots in New York City, yeah. where the, you see all of them. And at that point, they're all on different sides of the same thing. Like right. so you have one guy cowering upstairs, afraid, and then another guy who you've already met is breaking down his door. Yeah, you ha- I had already talked to cops in that chapter and homeless people who are in tent city. And so, and the, and the book, just for people who haven't read it, um, is about Saint Mark, the historic Saint Mark Street, Eighth Street in in New York City, and, which is where I grew and, up. And, yeah, and the whole history spanning back for how many? How many years? 400 years. Yeah. Um, so it was like just that, thinking of it in terms of that and like doing this arc um, where it culminates in this big dramatic explosion, like I never would have come up with that on my own. Like he really pushed me to that by making me read all those plays. That's awesome. Um, I have, well, I've got plenty more questions. I think we have time for about two or three more questions. Does anybody, anybody out here have one? Let me, let me ask you this. Um, 
Yeah. Ada, so my, my mom is actually cool as shit. And so she was the two people, every time I finished an essay for the book, I would, I would email it to Sean, my editor, and I would also email it to my mom. And, and she would give me a little, you know, like I, she constructed constructive you, criticism. Very, she's very gentle. She would usually give me like one suggestion per essay. Like yeah. this line sucked or this essay sucked, this, yeah. something like that. But, um, my question, but no, she's very generous. But um, it was like it was like nice because I knew Sean would come in with the hard response, and and she would at least be like, "I loved it." That's but good. this thing, um, so I want to know about your parents and like how you know your book is extremely personal, also yeah. in, in many ways. Um, how did a it lot feel? Of sex in it? Yeah, how did you feel sharing it with them? Um, there. And when when did they read it? They read it when it was done. Yeah. I didn't give it to them along the way. Um, My mom has a good quote in there, which is when I was fighting with Neil, I went and asked her, um, how did you stay married? They've been married 43 years. And um, I was like, you know, how do you do it? And she said, it's easy. You don't get divorced. Um, And she meant it. Like, that was her advice. And it was actually kind of good. It was helpful. But, um, uh, so yeah, they read it. They liked it. Yeah, like a, more than I thought they would. They uh-huh. were, they're, you know, they're also kind of wacky bohemians. Yeah, so it's, open-minded they're, they're people. They're hard. To, they're hard to scandalize. They're, yeah, you tried. <laughs> I tried. They didn't fall for it. Um, and then I, you know, I gave it to a couple of my friends. My friend Asia, who's a therapist, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she was really helpful. And then um, my friend Jason, who's a journalist in New York, mm-hmm. and he was also super helpful. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, what uh, I was gonna say. What, what was your parents' marriage like? It's it's ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, and I, I'm, it's one thing to ask you in your book to share your own personal stories. It's another to like put them on the line. But it's just, it's just you know, it's just those of us and just sixty thousand podcast listeners. Exactly. Um, they, you know, they've been through what I call in the book a like how much time do you have list of crises. Like uh-huh. they've kind of been through all of it. They they won some bingo matches. They've yeah they filled their bingo <laughs> cards like it's all yeah. it's all xed out. Um, and uh, I don't know they just and I think in the I think when I was younger I thought like how is this gonna work out yeah. and I thought maybe it even shouldn't yeah. Um, as a teenager, I just was like, oh, no. Um, and God, I'm so glad they stayed together. I think about it now, and I think it would have been really crummy, you know, if I had to now, like, visit each of them and their new people and all, just as they get into old age. Yeah. Um, God, what a what a blessing it is to have them in the same house. So yeah. all the tending to they need, it's it's condensed. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, logistically, it's easier. And then also they really, you know, I think... One thing that I heard from so many couples that have been together a long time is you wear each other down. Yeah. Like, you just... Everybody has rough edges, and then over time, you kind of grow into this relationship, and um, and I think they've done that now. Yeah. So they are really... They're compatible. Yeah. I don't know that they were 20 years ago, even, but now they are, because they made each other that way. Well, it resonates with me, because, you know, my parents, they've been together now... Uh, Last week they celebrated, I guess, what is their forty ninth oh wedding, wedding anniversary, and so, but 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 still, like you know, it was tumultuous a lot of the time yeah. when I was growing up. So that resonates with me. Um, but um, for, you know, ten years ago, I think I had a lot of friends who were getting married, and I was going to weddings all the time too, and either making toast, officiating some of the weddings, and now. You know, five, ten years later, there's this whole second wave, which is friends getting divorced. Yeah. And I feel like, I and, and, and it's not it's not all of them, but but some of them. Yeah. And and I always feel like the most, the least equipped. You know, if, if someone, if somebody, one of my friend's parents dies, or or they go through some other tragedy, I kind of feel like I know I'm good at giving advice, or at least giving sort of gentle support but i always feel ill-equipped to know what to say to a friend who's who you know is like hey man next time you're back home let's let's go out for a drink right and we offer a drink and they're like yeah man we're, we're breaking up and yeah. i i never know what to say or how to sort of you know other than like you know i love you and right. you know we're still friends so yeah. i'm sorry that's <laughs> happening but i mean what what you know you talk about this some in the book and what um and of course through your own personal experience mm-hmm. but like what what two things i guess what what what's the best thing for me to say to these friends who are going through this? And what's your what's advice do you have for people who are coming out of a marriage and but still hoping you know to find love again? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think the one thing I don't really do in the book is like give like advice advice. Yeah. But I do think that one thing that anybody who's trying to be with somebody else in any way, um, I think it's trying to see the other person's feelings as real. Like, is actually incredibly difficult for all of us. 
What do you mean? Like, you know, I, I talked to some therapists about this, and um, they were saying, like, across social science, um, they keep seeing over and over again, like, you know, the doctor and the patient leave a room, and they ask the doctor, how did you do? And the doctor says, great, I'm a really good doctor. And then they ask the patient, how did, how did he do? And they say, terrible, he didn't listen to me at all. And that basically a marriage is like that exchange every day, all day long. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that like just recognizing that you're often the doctor in that scenario, um, and and acknowledging that maybe you're not listening as and doing not as me. awesome a job as you think you are is it can be very helpful. It can go toward like bridging that gap that inevitably exists between any two people in yeah. any situation, whether they're married or divorced or friends. Yeah. And 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 what do you think is a good thing for me to? Say to my friend, I mean, other than... Does anybody have any suggestions? I don't know. Just, I think just compassion is the same thing. It's it's hard. Divorce can be really rough. Better (laughs) luck next time. There you go. (laughs) Second time's the charm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll go to one last question, but anybody else here? As we wind down here with, with Ada Calhoun, the author of... Uh, wedding toast, I'll never give. Thank you so much to Davey for doing this. By the way, this book is so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, let me ask you one last question then, and, uh, and then we'll wrap, wrap up. Make sure you come and get your book signed by and, Ada. And drink, and drink all the wine. And yes. Yeah, there's yeah. some wine left, so we can't leave any behind. That's, <laughs> yeah, the booksellers would be really mad at us if we left them. <laughs> um, what do you think is the worst mistake you've ever made in your marriage? Oh, God. You're ending so, with this? You're ending with the worst mistake I ever made in my marriage? And... and, and, um, and uh, and happiest moment. You uh, do that one afterwards. Yes. Okay. Worst mistake, I guess, would just be, you know, just being really bad at, at listening to the way he was acting, like paying attention to the way he was acting rather than what he was saying. Because I think he sort of would talk a good game about, like, I don't care what you do, you know, um, in various ways. And then not paying attention to the fact that, like, I knew him better than he knew himself. You're talking about, like, a time when you had a crush on something? Stuff like that, that. yeah. I mean, and, but also just kind of in general, like, you yeah. know, like, freedom, basically. Like, you know, he was kind of like, oh, you know, I don't need you around. Not, I don't need you around. But just he sort of would, would posture a little bit more. Independence. About how kind yeah. of he didn't, he, sort of nonchalance that was not real, and I knew it was not real, and I pretended it was real for my own selfish reasons. Um, and then happiest moment I describe in my book, like we were, we had had this, been having like a really rough time and suddenly we were at a baseball game and we, it was like a minor league baseball game. We we're like sitting there like drinking beer and watching this game and we wound up like laughing so hard at, some, at various things. And we had this, and the sun was like setting and it was just this magical, beautiful moment. And I talk in the book about just those moments of like grace in a marriage that you don't see coming. And those are the things I think that sustain you. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, the whole book is beautiful, Thank you. and Ada, it's great to, great to talk to you about it. You too. Um, and uh, great to have some some wonderful questions from you guys. Um, if you have more questions, obviously come up and talk to Ada afterwards. And um, yeah, buy some books. Let's hang out, have some drinks. Thank you to Skylight Books. Yeah, thanks, one, my, Skylight. one of my favorite bookstores in the world. Um, I love this place so it's much, a and, and it's an incredible anchor for for Los Angeles and beyond. So thanks to all our listeners on the podcast, and thanks to Skylight for hosting us tonight. And um, stick around. We'll see you. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.